0: The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 5, David Platt explores scripture's teaching on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. After looking at the mystery behind the Spirit's identity, as well as the way the Spirit has been viewed historically by the Church, this study focuses on the person and work of the Spirit. Finally, a number of significant issues related to the Spirit are addressed blasphemy against the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, filling with the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit. For The Secret Church Five study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit radical.net slash SC5. And this is Secret Church Five, episode 10.
1: That leads to a few practical exhortations then. How do you put those together? Number one, my encouragement is to seek spiritual gifts that most edify the body of Christ. That's plain and simple. Scripture doesn't tell us to seek miraculous gifts or non miraculous gifts, it tells us to speak, seek gifts that most edify the church. What's most needed in the church, seek those gifts. Second, take the gospel to the lost especially to unreached peoples who have no special revelation. I'm going to try to make this really quick, but I think what we see in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is as the, as the Word of Christ, the Gospel of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ is going into new places, that there is authentication that is happening there by signs and wonders, some miraculous things. When I look at what God is doing in the world today and I see the gospel advancing to new places, particularly unreached places, that's where we hear most about signs and wonders and these sorts of things. I think that makes sense. I think there's an authentication that may be going on there to the word as it's going for the first time to new places, to unreached places. At the same time, once we have the word and the word is established and we're saturated with the gospel, then... I think the need for signs and wonders is less. And here's why. I'd point to the rich man and Lazarus parable that Jesus tells when the rich man's in hell and he says, go to my brothers and tell them that this is real. And he tells them even if they saw somebody rise from the dead, it wouldn't make any difference. They've got the word, they've got the prophets, and they're ignoring it. They've turned a deaf ear to what they already have. This is why I don't think it's necessary for us to see all kinds of signs and wonders in the church today in our culture because we have got the word and if we would believe this word, we would follow this word and trust this word, we would see the power of God at work. We've neglected this word. And certainly, we don't need to neglect this word and seek out signs and wonders. Instead, at the same time, we go to the lost, especially the unreached peoples who have no special revelation. And as we go, we do this. We trust the authority of his word. This word has authority to save. Go to the deepest, darkest tribe on this planet farthest as possible from the gospel if there's degrees of being far from the gospel. And this gospel is powerful enough to save. And as you go, ask God to attest to his word. I'm not saying I know all that that means. But I am saying I think it's good to go into an area that's unreached. I'll have the opportunity to be in India next week, week and a half. Go in there, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, and asking. It's good to ask the Holy Spirit of God to show that this word is true in a way that brings honor to Him and glory to Christ. So that's what I would encourage us to do. Third, and here's where I really want to kind of bring it. So, so Dave, did you say you're cessationist or continuationist there? Here's, here's what I would say. Number one, be open regarding the Spirit of God. I would encourage us as a people to be open regarding the Spirit of God and be generous when it comes to brothers and sisters around the world who talk about the work of the Spirit. I'm not going to sit back and say miraculous gifts are not in use today, that they've ceased. I don't think there's enough scriptural evidence to say they definitely have ceased, which we're going to talk about in just a second. At the same time, there's an openness there, but there's also be open regarding the Spirit of God, yet discerning according to the Word of God. The last thing I want to do is oppose something that the Spirit of God is doing in His church today. At the same time, I do not want to attribute anything to the Spirit that the Word tells me not to attribute to the Spirit. So I think we need to be very cautious and discerning according to the Word of God to make sure that we are describing the work of the Spirit and attributing the work of the Spirit to that which is biblical as best as possible. Open, but discerning. Basically, I don't don't in Scripture see enough evidence that these gifts were definitely supposed to cease right then after the apostles. At the same time, I don't see a lot of evidence that they are that important to continue on either, that they will definitely continue on till any other particular time. Instead, I think, I think we need to be open but cautious, discerning, according to the Word. That leads to the prophecy picture. 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease, Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now we see but a poor, I've skipped down a couple of of sentences. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as, as I am fully known. Here's one example. Here's one example. Prophecy. The gift of prophecy, according to 1 Corinthians 13, the gift of prophecy is temporary. It's temporary. Where where there are prophecies, they will cease. The question is, when will they cease? There's really two options here. Will they cease when Scripture is complete? That's what the the cessationists would say. The cessationists would say that prophecy ceased when the apostles finished, off the scene, we've got Scripture, we don't need prophecy. The other option is, will it cease when Jesus comes back? And this is a position that would be open more to someone from the continuationist line. And it comes to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. And basically what you've got is prophecies that will cease. You look down, it's one of the things I read. It says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So prophecy is imperfect, and when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, this is the point of debate because cessationists would say when perfection comes, that's referring to when the Word is complete, when Scripture is complete. That's when perfection comes. And I I don't agree with that. I I don't see that in 1 Corinthians 13 because when perfection comes... I think, is a reference to when Jesus comes back. I think it's very clear when you look later in the passage in the context here. Now we see, but a poor reflection as a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This is talking about our glorification. This is talking about when we will see Christ, when we will be fully known by Christ, and our salvation will be complete. It also couples with what Paul had said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when he, verse 7, when he talked about our spiritual gifts are given to us as we wait for Jesus Christ, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gift of prophecy is definitely temporary. I don't believe 1 Corinthians 13, at least not conclusively, certainly not conclusively teaching us that prophecy will cease when Scripture is complete. So you get to 1 Corinthians 14 and you've got a picture of Prophecy described in first Corinthians fourteen one through five and what I believe first Corinthians fourteen one through five is saying is that until Jesus comes back, Christians desire the gift of prophecy because the church is edified with the gift of prophecy now what 's what 's interesting is here okay so there' If there's a gift of prophecy, then does that mean there are Isaiahs and Jeremiah's in the church today who can stand up and speak the word of God that's just as authoritative as what's in this word from Isaiah and Jeremiah? That I do not believe Scripture is teaching. I want to show it to you. I believe Scripture is showing us. Think about it this way. Three categories of prophecy. First, false prophecy. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, Jeremiah 23 all talk about false prophets who are speaking lies Here's what pro- false prophecy is. False prophecy consists of dishonest lies. Dishonest lies. and involves deceptive speech based on no revelation. Deceptive speech based on no revelation. This is not something God's revealing in prophets speaking. There's no revelation here. They're deceiving. They're claiming to speak for God when they're not speaking for God. And it ignores divine scripture. It undercuts divine scripture for that matter. But it ignores divine scripture. That's false prophecy. True prophecy... So, what we see in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and these other guys in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. That consists, truth prophecy consists of inspired truth. This involves direct speech based on new revelation. What I mean by that is, what we talked about, God is revealing His Word and the prophets are speaking it. And it results in divine scripture. The prophets speak and we've got scripture. In the Old Testament, that's what prophets were doing. In the New Testament, The counterpart to Old Testament prophets are the New Testament apostles. This is Paul, an apostle of God, speaking, led by the Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. So the apostles are now doing what the prophets had done, speaking as they're led by the Spirit. And that leads to the picture of Scripture that we have. Old Testament apostles, uh, prophets, New Testament apostles, they give us Scripture that is true, It is inerrant. Scripture is authoritative, true, authoritative. This is the Word of God, not the Word of man. It is the Word of God through men. It is unique. There is no other book like this and we hold in our hands, it is sufficient. True, authoritative, unique, sufficient. This book has everything we need for life and godliness. God is not sitting back wishing that he'd added something here that he forgot to give to us. Everything we need is right here. It's sufficient. It is complete. It doesn't need a volume two. It doesn't need to be revised or updated by anybody. That's what we have in the Bible. So you've got false prophecy, true prophecy that leads to that. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. And then you've got this picture of the gift of prophecy that's been talked about in 1 Corinthians 14. when two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So there's some level of prophecy that's going on here that's not on one of those first two categories that is involving the gift of prophecy. And I think what Scripture is saying here is that there is a type of speech that consists of spirit-prompted talk. Spirit prompted talk. Saying something that God, by His Spirit, the Spirit of God, brings spontaneously to our mind and we begin to, to speak. It involves direct, indirect speech based on established revelation. What I mean by that, this is not a new Paul on the scene getting new revelation that's coming down the pipe to give to the church. This is the Spirit speaking to us, prompting us to speak based on what is in this book. And it's tested. I say that because it's tested by divine scripture. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. That's why he said others should weigh carefully what he said. When the Old Testament prophets speak, Isaiah wouldn't come out and say, you guys need to weigh carefully what I'm about to say. Isaiah would come out and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Listen, same thing in the New Testament apostles. When the gift of prophecy is being used, it's always being weighed carefully. It's being tested because the gift of prophecy is imperfect. It's not perfect. It's not, uh, the gift of prophecy is imperfect. It's fallible. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, Paul is warning them about some prophecy that was wrong. It's similar to, yet distinct from teaching. It's not just preaching or teaching the Word because that is listed as a separate gift there in Romans chapter 12. Some people think, well, how can, how can the spirit prompt talk that's fallible, that may be, they may have errors in it? Think about it this way. In light of the whole teaching picture, I, I teach the Word Sunday in and Sunday out in this faith family. Is it possible that I say something in error? Absolutely. Everything I say is not infallible. There's certainly fallible things, but I, I pray, I hope the Spirit of God is inspiring me to teach. In the same way, there's a picture where the Spirit is inspiring prophecy, prompting prophecy, but because it's not on the same level as this picture right here, that it's not infallible, authoritative truth for us. It's tested by infallible authoritative truth. When you look at the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, you see people speaking about the future. You see people disclosing sin and un- un- sins in unbelievers' hearts and encouraging the church. Here's the implications. Remember, two implications. Remember that Scripture alone contains authoritative truth for all situations at all times. Therefore, know the Word. We do not need, nor do we have anyone on the level of an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament apostle. Scripture is good and is sufficient. We have everything we need. This book is our authority. Not what you say or I say. This word is our authority. Therefore, we know this word. Second implication, consider that the Spirit may grant the gift of prophecy to apply biblical truth at particular times or in particular situations. Therefore, seek the Spirit. In other words... I think Scripture is giving us a picture of times where the Spirit may prompt someone to speak based on the word to encourage and edify the church today. And that's what's being talked about there in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, What about tongues? I think we're certainly confused on tongues. Here's what I mean by that. Tongues are marked by subjective certainty for many. Some of you are thinking. What about tongues? That's not a question at all. I speak in tongues. Uh, This is what you're thinking. I speak in tongues. I speak in tongues in my private prayer closet, or I speak in tongues in the church that I'm a part of. So why why is this even a question? Subjectively, you've experienced this, so there's certainty there. The only problem is, I want to be careful here, but the only problem is not every religious experience is divine. So just because we've experienced something doesn't make it true. There are similar practices to tongue speaking. I don't want to offend anybody in saying this, but there are similar practices of tongue speaking that are in other world religions, that are in voodoo and witchcraft. And so there are certainly religious experiences that are not from the Spirit of God. At the same time, for others, tongues are marked by objective confusion for many. There's a lot of people who think tongues are weird, dangerous, should be avoided at all costs. The cessationists would say tongues have ceased. But... I really believe that there's not strong biblical evidence for the cessation of tongues, or prophecy, healing, just like we've seen. There's not strong biblical evidence. So what do we we think about these things then? Tongues defined. At Pentecost, tongues are intelligible languages that may warrant translation. They're speaking in intelligible languages. They're speaking languages that are understood by different people from different nations in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Elsewhere, for example, what Paul's addressing in Corinth, tongues are unintelligible languages that may warrant interpretation. Not translation, but interpretation, because they're unintelligible. They are not understandable without an interpreter. Speaking in tongues involves prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. And anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. It's directed. Speaking in tongues is primarily directed to God. Prayer or praise spoken in syllables, not understood by the speaker, primarily directed to God. If I pray in a tongue, First Corinthians fourteen fourteen, my spirit prays. And it occurs in the spirit. My spirit prays. So that's what 1 Corinthians Corinthians is talking about. Unintelligible languages, prayer and praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker that needs interpretation directed to God in the spirit. Tongues described, what you've got is 1 Corinthians 14. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. So here's the picture. Paul says speaking in tongues involves an interpreter who reports to the church the general meaning of what is spoken. If there is no interpreter present, then the speaker needs to be quiet. Must be an interpreter. Speaking in tongues is also characterized by self-control the, the New Testament does not give us room for frenzied disorderly conduct. There's self-control that is a fruit of the Spirit here. And it's so controlled here in 1 Corinthians 14, you've got one, sometimes two, at the most, three people who would speak in tongues. At the most. The picture here, even, even tongues in Pentecost, they stopped speaking in those, those languages when Peter started to preach the gospel. Speaking in tongues, involving an interpreter, characterized by self-control, and speaking in tongues must edify the church and glorify God. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. They must edify the church and glorify God. That's in public. That's what happens in public. In private, he who speaks in a tongue, edifies himself, speaks to himself and God in 1 Corinthians 14, 28. Paul seems to have a favorable view of people who speak in tongues in private. Uh, I think it begs the question, uh, and I'll, I'll be honest, uh, just to lay the cards on the table, I, I've never spoken in tongues in private or in public. I, n- I know people who've spoken in tongues in private and public. I've been in situations of, of both. The, the picture is... The, the private speaking in tongues, I don't think scripture says well, there's, there's no way this can happen or should happen. At the same time, spiritual gifts are given primarily for the edification of the church. And so speaking in tongues in private at least causes some question of how this is edifying the church, uh, edifying the people of God. If I have the gift of teaching and I teach in private, it's not going to be very good. so. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think there's and I certainly respect a lot of folks who I know who uh, have talked about a private prayer language and there seems to be there in 1 Corinthians 14:4 4 and 28, room for that. So unless you take a completely cessationist view, I think there's an openness here in the New Testament to speaking in tongues. But But the key question that I want to make sure because I believe Scripture speaks very clearly on this, are tongues normative? Are tongues normative? I want you to listen to me. Listen to this uh, quote, direct quote from a charismatic manual. A person should claim this gift, talking about tongues, in confidence when he is prayed with to be baptized in the Spirit. Yielding to tongues is an important first step and it is worth putting effort into encouraging a person to yield to tongues, even to run the risk of being labeled imbalanced. Often people can be helped to yield to tongues rather easily. After praying with a person to be baptized in the Spirit, the team member should lean over or kneel down and ask the person if he would like to pray in tongues. When he says yes, he should encourage him to speak out, making sounds that are not English. He should then pray with him again. When the person begins to speak speak in tongues, he should encourage Him. After you ask to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and ask for the gift of tongues, then yield to it. Begin by speaking out, if necessary, beginning by just making meaningless sounds. The Holy Spirit will form them. I do not believe Scripture backs that up. This is something the Spirit does, His sovereign operation. And if we're going to seek anything, we seek gifts that most edify the church, which is why Paul said seek prophecy, that whole kind of picture. Even here in Acts 10 and Acts 19, they certainly did not have the charismatic manual. At the same time, this question, are tongues normative? Again, Acts 10, Acts 19. These were very unique experiences that are going on in this period in redemptive history. And I don't think that they provide us with a foundation to say, well, everybody who's based on Acts 19, because Paul placed his hands on these guys and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, that everybody who has the Spirit or is baptized in the Spirit, which is a phrase that's not used there, should speak in tongues. I think that is going way beyond the bounds. I think that's taking, again, narrative passages in Scripture and making them normative. In Acts, tongues in Acts, they occur in groups, in groups, and their primary purpose is to demonstrate the advancement of the Gospel in light of this new period in redemptive history. They occur in groups for the advancement of the gospel. Tongues in Corinth is different. They occur with individuals. Now individuals use this in the context of the church and their primary purpose is to edify the church in worship. But we have to be careful not to take narratives like Acts 8 and 10 or 19 and make them normative for everybody. Well, this happened to them, so this has to happen to everybody. That's, the, that's, the, that's a very basic Bible study principle. When you look at narratives in Scripture, don't look at the narrative of Abraham offering his son Isaac on a, on a sacrificial altar and thinking, think, well, every dad needs to do this if they have faith in God. We don't say those things. We don't look at the story of Daniel and we think, well, I'm going to prove my faith by going and spending the night with some lions, and I'm going to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and jump into a furnace. These narrative is not normative. There are parts of Scripture that tell us, they give us commands. Let's follow those and then seek to understand narrative in the context of redemptive history. Conclusions. Speaking in tongues is not normative evidence of New Testament faith. I'm not saying that Scripture is teaching that tongues have ceased completely. I I don't think Scripture speaks very clearly on whether or not they've ceased or not. But... I think Scripture does speak very clearly that they're not normative evidence of New Testament faith and they're not a necessary expression of New Testament faith. Mighty movements of the Spirit of God have not been hindered by people not speaking in tongues. This is very important. I'm not saying that if you speak in tongues, that's a bad thing by any means. I don't think Scripture speaks very clearly on some of these things, but I think Scripture does speak clearly that we should not say to others that... You need to speak in tongues as evidence that something had happened to you in the Spirit. I think we focus on what we know from the Spirit, like the fruit of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. That should be happening. That should be happening, not tongues. What about healing? Last one, gifts of healing. Gifts of healing in 1 Corinthians 12, 8-10 and verse 28. The purpose of healings, and I'm going to show you these in the word, healings... Four primary purposes that I see. Healings authenticate God's word, the gospel. They authenticate God's word. Healings comfort God's people, the church. God shows mercy to his people who are ill or sick through healings. Healings remove hindrances to God's work, to ministry. And healings glorify God's name. Authenticate God's word. The gospel, they comfort God's people of the church, they remove hindrances to God's work and ministry, and they glorify God's name. People see evidence of the greatness and the goodness and the love and the power and the wisdom of God in healings. The gifts of healings. Gifts of healings. And I'm using the plural here because that's how it's described in 1 Corinthians 12. The gift of praying in different kinds of situations with different kinds of needs for healing to occur. Look at James 5. Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Now pause real quick. Some would say, well, we don't need to pray for healing. We don't need to even encourage. David, you should not encourage people to pray for healing because if God doesn't heal, then maybe they will doubt God's power. Maybe they will grow angry at God. I hear that in one sense at the same time the alternative I don't see in Scripture. I don't think I would ever say to anybody, well, don't pray for healing. I would never say to somebody, well, God does not have power to heal or that He's not able to heal. There's obviously a picture in which healing does happen. And God does do miraculous things at times. And so should we pray for healing? Yes, I think we're encouraged in Scripture. I think it's what James 5 is doing. Pray, encouraged to pray for healing. I don't think we need to take the step that some in, in more Pentecostal kind of pictures would take to say that, well, all sickness is it attributed either directly or indirectly to Satan. And we have power over Satan and Christ of the Spirit. And therefore, if you have enough faith in Christ of the Spirit, you'll be delivered from your sickness. I don't think that's biblical. Because I think there's all kinds of instances. It didn't work for Paul, 2 Corinthians 12. He's asking God to remove this thing, and he didn't. There's other people. There were times when Paul was sick. Unfortunately, Paul didn't live by that, so I don't think Scripture gives us that kind of picture. But Scripture does tell us to pray for healings and does talk about it gifts of healing. So how do we then, how do we pray for healing? When somebody's sick, how do we pray for healing? I think two main thoughts. Pray with purpose for healings. And by that I mean pray in light of the purposes we saw earlier for the advancement of the gospel. You look at Acts 5 and 9 and 14 and 19 there. What you see is people being healed and people coming to Christ as a result of that. So pray. I think when you pray for somebody who's sick, pray. God, I pray that you might bring healing here for the advancement of the gospel, for the comfort of the church, for the comfort of God's people. This is Acts 27 through 12 This is so appropriate. This is Eutychus, who Paul just kept preaching and kept preaching and preaching, and he fell asleep and he fell out of the window. So be thankful that you are in nice cushion seats right now and not high above two, three, four stories, or else we might have to pull Eutychus out here and really test whether or not this gift of healing things works. So, uh... Anyway, next, success in ministry. Success in ministry. This is a picture there of Tabitha being healed to push ministry forward in that region there in Joppa for the glory of God. Acts 3 is when man, lame man, is healed and Begins to glorify Christ, and many people are astonished by this picture. So pray. Pray in light of those purposes for the advancement of the gospel, for the comfort of God's people, for success in ministry, for the glory of God. And pray with faith for healings. And here's the kind of faith we pray with. Now, again, please do not mistake me as saying here that if we have enough faith, that, that means healing will automatically happen. I do not believe Scripture is teaching that. I don't see that in Scripture. Pray with faith for healings because the kingdom is here. In Luke chapter 7, the way Jesus described how John the Baptist would know that the kingdom of God had come in Christ is because the blind are receiving sight and the lame are walking. Those who have leprosy are cured and the deaf are healing. Jesus' presence on the earth was evidence that the kingdom was here. And when God miraculously brings healing in instances today, he reminds us that the kingdom is here. Christ's kingdom is here. But we pray also with faith that the kingdom is coming when God doesn't heal, we hold to this truth. The kingdom is coming. 2 Corinthians 12, Galatians 4, 1 Timothy 5, and 2 Timothy 4 are all instances in which healing did not come, where people were still sick even as they were following God. But they knew, and the New Testament teaches us. So we pray. We pray in light of the purpose. Pray for, with faith for healings. But we know that there's coming a day when He will heal our bodies. This is Romans 8, Ephesians 4, he will heal our bodies and one day we will see his face. That leads us back. We're going to close out with that page 54, I think it was. He will heal our bodies and we will see his face. Here's the deal, the spirit in consummation. This is where we're going to close out very briefly. Here's what the spirit does. We've talked a lot about all the spirit does in our lives. When it comes down to it as we look toward the future the spirit does these things. Number 1 the spirit assures us. We are confident in the life of Christ in us because of the spirit he has given us. This is how we know that he lives in us. 1 John 3 says we know it by the spirit he gave us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. What's interesting is in the New Testament the we see different metaphors, different pictures to describe how the spirit assures us. The family metaphor the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. By Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It's the spirit of adoption. The financial metaphor. The Spirit is a down payment for our salva- of our salvation. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and He put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Spirit is like a... Like, it's a He's a guarantee, it's a, like a first installment... Here's money that says there's more to come. There's more to come. It's a financial metaphor. The agricultural metaphor, the Spirit is the first fruits of our salvation. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, just like the first fruits of the crop reveal, show us, remind us that there's a harvest coming. There's a harvest coming. The Spirit's in you. This is not all there is to it. There's more to come. There's more to come. In the legal metaphor, the Spirit is a seal. We are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You are sealed, brothers and sisters. You have a seal on you, the promised Holy Spirit who guarantees your inheritance in heaven, who guarantees that there is coming a day when he will heal your body and you will see his face. It's guaranteed because he sealed you. The Spirit assures and the Spirit glorifies. The Spirit will complete his sanctifying work in his people he will complete his sanctifying work in his people. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. The Spirit says, come, whoever's thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And then you get to the end of Revelation 2, and the author says, the Spirit says through the word, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The Spirit in us, amidst all that he does, The Spirit in us cries out for the day when we will see Christ.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at radical.net.